You're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. We, we have been going through the book of Judges in the spring semester of 2019 with RUF at UT. And uh, we've been saying each week that the book of Judges, it's a, it is a collection of true stories that are written with the intent to show you that you have a great need for a savior and that you have a great savior for your need. And if, if you've been with us or if you're familiar with the Bible at all. Uh, judges aren't civil judges. These are, these are military heroes. These are deliverers. And there's this catalog of all of these judges that we've looked at all throughout the book. And tonight, we get uh, to the last judge, Samson. So probably, almost, probably the most famous judge as well. But the book of Judges saves, in many ways, the worst for last. Samson is, as the kids would say, totes the woat. <laughs> I just, saw, I just saw someone in the back do like the dog head cock. <laughs> but Samson, we're going to, so he gets, he, he is impulsive, he is violent, he is a narcissist, he's an alcoholic, he's a sex addict, he is, he is combative, he's just a disaster of a person. And he gets more airtime in this book than anybody else. He gets four solid chapters devoted to him. So we're going to look at him tonight and we're going to look at him um, uh, next week. But um, we're going to do things a little bit differently tonight. I'm going to read the passage, but because we're, we're trying to cover three chapters in one evening, I've, I've kind of picked a couple of uh, sample passages to read from. I'm going to read from this, make a couple of comments as we go, and then I'll make a couple of points at the end. Sound good? So let's begin. I'm going to read it to you. This is... Um, uh, judges really 13, 14, and 15. And to cite my sources, I'm getting a lot of help tonight from two former uh, RUF campus ministers, uh, Luke Miedema, love that name, and Britton Wood. So shout out to my boys, Luke and Britton. So Judges 13, let's begin. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. Okay, let's hit pause right there. That little phrase, this, the, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is the seventh time that this phrase has shown up in the book. Over and over and over, they keep doing evil, they keep doing evil, they keep doing evil, they keep abandoning God. It's just like a broken record. Here we go again. The rest of chapter 13, I'm going to skip it. It's, it's, the birth of, it's the birth story of Samson. But when we pick up in verse 14, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice what happens in the story when God shows up. It's pretty interesting. Three different times it says the spirit of the Lord shows up in the story. And I, I just want you to pay attention to what happens. You can highlight it, underline it, circle it, whatever you do. But just pay attention. What, is this, what, what happens in the story when the spirit of the Lord shows up? Verse 14. Samson... He's born now. He went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now remember, the Philistines are the bad guys. They're the enemies. They're the ones oppressing Israel. And he sees a Philistine girl, verse 2. And then he came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. 
So he's, he's, uh, he's, he's kind of snarky with his parents. He's, you can see already he's driven by external appearances. He sees that she's hot and he wants her. And he's like, dad, get her for me. And then verse uh, three, but his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. You see that Samson is just like this entitled, like spoiled brat. This reminded me of a story. When I was uh, maybe in high school, I went to a Dallas Mavericks game. I grew up in Dallas. And my sister and I were watching the game, and the Mavericks were losing. And there, was, uh, um, two ki- there were some kids behind us with their dad. And one of, the ki- we were, one of the kids said to their dad, I vividly remember this. They were like, Daddy, make them win. Daddy, they're losing. Make them win. And it... This kind of feels like what Samson's doing. You're like, Daddy, but I want her. Go get her. So, verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. That's the most important verse in the whole story. We're going to come back to it later. Verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. (laughs) I love that detail at the end. Just like, that was so normal. That was the reference point. He, you know, he tore this line apart, you know, like you would tear apart a young goat. <laughs> but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. And then he went down and he talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. So, okay, I didn't include this next section of the story. It's too long. But basically him and this girl, they get engaged and they, his family throws this giant wedding party, which the Hebrew word there is actually interesting. It basically means week-long keg party. And they're in the middle of this feast gearing up for this wedding. And for my Enneagram people, I'm convinced that Samson is an eight-wing seven. <laughs> because he's, extre- he's the challenger. He's extremely combative. And he goes to the Philistines in the middle of this celebration. He's like, hey, I got a brain teaser. I got a riddle for you. And if you get the riddle right, I'll give you 30 sets of clothes. But if you don't get the riddle right, then you owe me 30 sets of clothes. Kind of a weird... Bet. But they get so frustrated, they don't, they, he throws up the little brain teaser, they don't understand it, they can't figure it out, so they go to his fiance and they blackmail her into getting the answer. So now they got the answer and they go back to him and they say, okay, we got the answer to your stupid brain teaser, your stupid riddle. So what happens next? Verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Ashkelon and he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. That's awkward. The best man gets the girl. So Samson is so upset because of this whole thing. What he does in response, again, I didn't include this in your passage, he ends up committing felony arson. He just goes to the Philistines and he just burns all of their fields, all of their food, all of their resources, all of their crops. And they get so upset at this that they decide to get back at Samson by, getting, by hitting him in the way that they thought would hurt him the most, which is by taking his you know, old fiancé and her father and burning them alive. And that's what they do. And you see this violence in this this conflict escalating and mounting over and over and over. 
Look at verse 15, 11. Then 3,000 men of Judah, now these are Israelites, these are Samson's people. They went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and they said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? You see how they're defending the Philistines? And then he said to them, this is Samson, as they did to me, so I've done to them. This is his way of saying, well, they started it. Verse 12. And they said to him, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. And they said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. And so they bound him with with two new ropes and they brought him up from the rock. So Samson's own people are like, dude, you are causing way too much trouble and drama with the Philistines. And so they bind him and they hand him over to their oppressor as a prisoner of war. And here's how it ends. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off of his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and he took it. And with it, he struck a thousand men. W-T-H. What is going on with this crazy story? I mean, what began as a pleasant countryside wedding turned into the murder of 30 people, which turned into felony arson, which turned into two people being burned alive, and then a thousand people getting slaughtered with the jawbone of a donkey. As, um, to quote Ron Burgundy, uh, (laughs) that escalated quickly. That really got out of hand fast. Um, did you, so here's what happens the three times that the Spirit of the Lord shows up. What happens each time that the Spirit of the Lord shows up? It show, uh, he shows up in, uh, in 14, verse 6, and Samson rips apart a lion like one would rip apart a young goat. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord shows up in 14, 19, and Samson ends up murdering 30 people. And then the Spirit of the Lord shows up in chapter 15, verse 14, and then he ends up killing 1,000 people. Each time God enters the story, you see conflict and you see violence and you see death and it intensifies and it escalates more and more and more. Why? Here's why. Because God is picking a fight with the Philistines. God's the instigator here, intentionally causing drama. And here's what I want to do. I want to to draw out two points from this weird story to try to um, unpack that idea. Here are the two points that I want to try to make. Number one, we don't want to be saved. And number two, God saves us anyway. We don't want to be saved. God saves us anyway. Let me show you where I get this from. And to set up this first idea that we don't want to be saved, I'll set it up this way. I don't know, I don't know, maybe you've seen the TV show The Office. But there's a a particular episode, if you've seen it, where um, Michael and... Jim are out on a sales trip and uh, Michael falls into a koi pond. You remember this? It's like a little pond in the, in the office and he, and he falls into the water. And when they get back to the office, everybody is laughing at Michael. He's kind of the butt of the joke. But then they find the surveillance footage and they see that as Michael was falling, Jim could have saved him, but instead he steps back and lets him fall in. And so everybody in the office turns towards Jim with this like anger and they're so upset with him. He's now the bad guy. 
And there's this amazing monologue that Dwight has with the camera. And here's what he says. Quote, Jim is my enemy, but it turns out that Jim is also his own worst enemy. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Jim is actually my friend. But because he is his own worst enemy, the enemy of my friend is my enemy. So actually Jim is my enemy. But, and the camera stops, but you can tell he's just going to keep going on and on and on. And here's why I bring this up, is because there's an interesting spiritual parallel to that. It is very easy to convince yourself that your enemy is your friend. It's really easy to convince yourself and to fool yourself into thinking that your enemy is your friend. If you think about your sin, your sin is this thing inside of you that's trying to kill you, that's trying to oppress you, and there's a part of us that loves it. There's a part of us that's at peace with our enemy. In fact, you can see this in the story. Um, Well, actually, if you see this pattern repeating itself all throughout the book of Judges, the people of Israel are at peace. They forget God. God, They become enslaved to foreign nations. Uh, They cry out to God for help. God sends this judge to save them, and uh, everything is great, and they enter into this time of peace. And because of this time of peace, they forget about God and they wander away from him and then they become enslaved. And round and round and round and round and round we go. And in chapter 13, verse 1, you see that cycle beginning again. Again, the people of Israel did evil. They abandoned God and so they become enslaved to the Philistines. And for the first time in the whole book, the cycle breaks. There's this glaring omission. They don't cry out for help. They have gotten to a point where their enemy has become their friend. Their, their, their slavery has become so comfortable to them, it feels like safety to them. They're at home with their abuser, their oppressor, the Philistines, the ones that are oppressing them, they're, they're, they, they don't want to break free from. This is in some ways um, the spiritual, this is a spiritual version of Stockholm Syndrome. If you've, if you've learned about this in your... Um, Psychology classes, Stockholm Syndrome is when you have positive feelings towards your captor. Somebody kidnaps you, abuses you, oppresses you. Uh, there's, there's tons of examples of this where people eventually get free and either defend or want to go back to the one that had captured them. That is what's happening spiritually with the people of Israel. And you see this even play out in chapter 15 when Samson starts fighting the bully and fighting the bad guys They're like, stop it. What are you doing? And they bind him and they hand him over because they're like, we cannot envision things being any different than this or any better than this. Stop it. We don't want to be saved. We are comfortable with where we are. And that's the story. That reveals something I think so deeply true of us that we can get to that point in life where we love our sin and the false gods and our addictions so much that we don't want to be freed from them. Because what they provide us with is they provide us with comfort and familiarity and safety. And even though it has all of these negative side effects, we're like, this still feels like home to me. I don't want you to mess with this God. I don't want you to take this from me. And you see this in so, I mean, there's tons of different examples of this if you think about it in your own life. Let me give you a few. Think about the false gods of success. The false gods of success, which are all around us, demand that you double down on the ambition. Demand that you be the best, that you be perfect. And we nod along and we say, yes, that feels right. I agree with that. 
And we're like, God, I don't want you to mess with that. I don't want you to take that. Because if I, if I ended up fighting against that, if I started to mess with that, that might mean that I get overlooked in my career. That might mean I don't get the job or the internship that the rest of the world says, these are the ones that you really have to have. These are the ones that really matter. And I can't sacrifice that. It's too costly. So God, don't, 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 I don't want to be saved from the false gods of success. Or you have the, you know, the false gods of popularity that demand that you don't spend any time with anybody that's uncool or anybody that's awkward. If there's any relationship that is, that is hard or challenging or doesn't benefit your reputation, you shouldn't be a part of it. And we nod along and we say, yes, that feels right. Because to fight against that, to challenge the false gods of popularity would mean that I would be uncomfortable. I would risk my reputation. What if I'm seen hanging out with people that are not cool? What if I'm hanging out with people that aren't cool and I'm stuck doing this awkward, weird thing and all the cool people are there doing that fun thing? I would miss out. And so elitism is just too sacred for us. We don't want to touch it. God, don't save me from elitism. Or here's one more. You have the false gods of power. And the false gods of power say, you know what your faith should look like? Your faith, Christianity should be Instagrammable. That here's what, here's what Christianity should look like. It should be about power. It should be about big numbers. It should be about influence. It should be about victory. It should be about having the right optics. And so you start to believe, yeah, the ways of the kingdom, it's about big crowds. It's about high energy. It's about being seen with the right types of Christians. And we nod along and we say, yes, that feels right. Because to fight against that, to challenge that would mean that our Christianity then becomes about weakness and suffering and embracing obscurity and serving the poor and, and laboring for justice and maybe not getting any recognition. And we're like, I don't want, I don't want that. God, don't save me from that. I want the, I want the false gods of power. And so you see, it's, it's, I mean, we're the people of Israel in the story. And for a lot of us, we've just stopped crying out to God for help. Or if we cry out to God for help, if you've noticed, if you notice in your own life, we cry out to God for help for relief from the symptoms, but not the actual sin itself. So we say, uh, God, take away the guilt and the, and the stress and the anxiety. I don't like those things, but, pl- but, you, but don't take away that what is core in my heart is that I, I, I have to have achievement. I want to keep that. I just don't like these negative side effects. I want to be about achievement, but take away the anxiety. Or we say, God, I want to retain the freedom to do whatever I want to do on the weekends, but I don't like how gross it makes me feel. I don't like how guilty it makes me feel after. I don't like the fear of wondering what other people will think of me if they find out what I've done. So can you remove that stuff? But I want to be able to still do whatever I want to do with my body. And so... We stop crying out to God for help, honestly, because um, we know that to fight our sin or our addictions or to, to fight these false gods would mean that we would end up losing something that we deeply believe will make us happy. To fight these things, the reason why we don't do it or the reason why we're hesitant to do it is because we know this is going to cost us something that we deeply believe will make us happy. And it's scary. It's risky. It feels like it's way too costly. 
And so we become like the people of Israel, where it's just like, I'm just, slavery feels more like home to me now. If, I know not everybody in the room is a Christian. Uh, if you claim to be a Christian, you've been a Christian for more than a month, you will know that fighting your sin, fighting your addictions... It's, it's not just like a victory after victory, like automatic victory after victory. It's, it is relentless. It's exhausting. You fail. You take one step forward. You, you take four steps back. And your life can feel like the book of Judges where it's just like this broken record of failure and disappointment. And, and it can just become so easy to just stop fighting. You know what's easier than dealing with our sin and our addictions? Not dealing with it. And when we stop dealing with it, we, we're like the people of Israel. We're just like, I, just, I don't want to be saved. I am comfortable with the false gods and what they provide for me. And the, the slavery feels like safety to me. The thing that's killing us, our enemy, we fool ourselves into thinking it's our friend. It gives us life. I don't want to fight it. To kill it would be to kill us. So we have a great need for a savior. Because we don't even want to be saved. <laughs> Often we don't even want to be saved. But here's the good news. The good news is that God saves us anyway. Look at, uh, this, is, this is idea number two. God saves us anyway. Look back at chapter 14, verse 4. I told you this is the key verse in the whole thing. It says, His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Even though Israel wasn't seeking an opportunity to be rescued from the Philistines, God was. God was seeking an opportunity. And it's so fascinating. God takes this disaster of a person with his you know, impulsivity and his, uh, his compulsive, this sex addict, just crazy person, and he uses him to be like this storm in the people, within the people of Phil, uh, the Philistines to create this conflict, to create this drama, to start a fight. God is this instigator here fighting against Israel's enemies because Israel is no longer willing or able to fight against them. But God saves them anyway. This is, the, this is the whole point of the book of Judges. This is the whole point of the Bible. This is the whole, in some ways, this is the whole reason why RUF exists. It's to communicate this point that when you aren't looking for a savior, your savior is looking for you. When you're not looking for a savior, you don't want a savior, the good news is, is that your savior is coming after you and looking after you. Romans 5.8 says this, that God demonstrates his love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. While we were still sinners, he died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our act and become better people. He didn't wait for us to come to him. While we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, he came after us. And he died for us. And he bore the penalty and the punishment that our sins deserve. Here's another one. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We didn't love God. We didn't want God. And God loved us anyway. God loves and pursues and runs after people that don't want anything to do with him. If you're anything like me, that's really good news. But here's the thing. When Jesus comes into your life and he finally catches up to you, as it were, he doesn't stop. Like, he's relentless. He, he, he's, he doesn't quit. Because most, a, lot of think, a lot of people think 
especially I think Southern American Christians think when Jesus comes into your life, it is, it's just this instant peace and calm and joy. And it's a lot of those things. But also when Jesus shows up in your life, you know what he does? He comes to declare war. That he puts a target on the forehead of all of your pet sins. And he says, I've showed up to murder them. Your, your greed, your lust, your need to be seen as a good person, your Americanized, self-centered hopes and dreams, your, your need to be perfect. Jesus says, all of these things have a target on their back, and I'm coming after them, and it's only a matter of time before I kill them. Jesus shows up into our lives to kill the very things that are trying to kill you. Why does he do that, though? Well, here's how I want to end. I want to end by um, having somebody answer that question that's better than I could answer it. This is, um, I'm going to read a little bit from a book. I'm going to do a little story time with Matt. Is that okay, Nicholas? Um, this, is a, this, is, this is a book by C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples. Lewis wrote this book called The Great Divorce. It's, it's not about divorce. It's not about marriage. It's a weird it's a weird, bizarre, fictional story of a group of people that are in hell that take a field trip to heaven on a bus. And um, I want to read you just a little conversation that happens between uh, a ghost and an angel. A ghost is like the spirit of an unredeemed person. It's just the uh, vacant kind of shell of a person. And, and, and this ghost has this conversation with an angel. I'm going to read this and then we'll be done says this. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily, and what sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. And as we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. And it wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. And he ceased snarling and presently began to smile. And then he turned and he started to limp westward away off to the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good. You see, I told this little chap, and here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop his show, so I shall have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood? Well, of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I mean, I hardly mean to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please. I I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep now of its own accord. I'm I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? 
Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think it over what you said very carefully. Honestly, I will. In fact, I'll let you kill it. I would let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I would need to be in very good health for this operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You would kill me if you did. It is not so. Why? You're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor, and I will come back the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew it? It would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? And the angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Have I your permission? Said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Damn and blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost. But he ended up whimpering. God help me. God help me. And the next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I had never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung it, broke back on the turf. That's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. And for a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. And then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably, solid but ever-growing, solid but growing ever-moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man, and then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. Why does God want to kill your sin and the false gods in your life? Because when he does, and only when he does, do you become more fully human. You don't become less of yourself, you become more of yourself. By killing the thing that's actually killing you, he transforms you into the person that you were created to be. Here's the good news. God cares way more about your welfare than you do. God loves you a whole lot more than you do. And he's willing to demonstrate it. By going after the things that you hold most dear, but are the things that are actually killing you. And that's good news. Scary news, but it's good news. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you're thank you that you're an instigator and you pick fights with the things that are trying to kill us. And I pray that in your kindness, 
you would do as the angel did to that guy in the story, that you would come after the things that are choking the life out of us and making us unsubstantial and making us lesser versions of the people that you've created us to be. Father, we are, we are scared. We don't want to give these things up. They feel like our prized little, our pets, and to kill them feels like it would kill us. Father, convince us that you're good. Convince us that you're committed to our well-being. Convince us that uh, you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.